Today, as uh, maybe some of you were watching some news over the weekend about Israel, we, we turn our thoughts back to events that took place almost 2,600 years ago, and it, it feels like not much has changed. Um, this land that God chose to bless the whole world through is again under attack, and it just seems to happen over and over again. Last week, Tri introduced us to the book and character of Nehemiah, and he reminded us that just as walls were an important part of, of a defensive measure to protect those ancient Israelites uh, from hostile neighbors, so too the modern church has moral walls for the protection of the church and ideally for the society that we live in as well. Uh, the Babylonians tore down Jerusalem's walls in 589 BC and took the citizens of Judah and Benjamin captive. Many of the moral teachings in our church and of a lifestyle of following Jesus are badly eroded in our day. And, uh, and they leave both the saints and society vulnerable to attack. Now, uh, just as an aside, um, there's a few other historical events taking place as the Israelites transition into their time in captivity. A new superpower arises. Persia takes over from Babylon. Uh, something called the Roman Republic is formed. Uh, the Greeks are uh, messing around with something called democracy. This is all happening at that same time period. Uh, the Greeks defeat the Persians in the famous Battle of Marathon. Buddhism is founded. Confucius is wandering around China teaching moral philosophy. And um, once again, the Greeks beat the Persians with the help of 300 Spartans who fought to their death. Oh, and Hippocrates voiced his famous Hippocratic Oath that continues to guide medicine practice to this day. So Nehemiah lived in interesting times. These are events that shaped the world we live in now, 2,600 years later. If you'll permit me one more historical reference, about 400 years after Nehemiah, or about 45 years before Jesus was born, um, another very famous person, a very famous phrase was uttered by a very famous person. And in Latin, it reads, veni, vidi, vici. Or the Romans supposedly would have said, veni, vidi, wiki. But veni, vidi, vici. Any idea what those three words mean? We came, we saw, we conquered. Who said it? Think of famous generals you may have heard of somewhere back in a high school history class. Any thoughts? Julius Caesar. And what does it mean? We came, or he would have said, I came, I saw, I conquered. What is he talking about? It's a quick, decisive battle. And, you know, we still use that phrase some 2,000 years later. Uh, we tweak it a little bit. Uh, after the death of Colonel Gaddafi, uh, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton quipped, we came, we saw, he died. Uh, it shows up in the Ghostbusters movie from 1984. It's twisted a little bit. I won't say that here in church. Um, it was actually truly transformed in 1683 when King Jan, or John III of Poland, 
uh, following the largest cavalry charge in world history, defeated the Turkish army at the gates of Vienna when they were about to overrun all of Europe. And he wrote a letter to the Pope after the battle, and he alluded to Julius Caesar by saying, we came, we saw, God conquered. And I thought, oh, there's my outline for Nehemiah chapter 2. It fits really well. My brain works in strange ways. So, Anyway, let's read it. Let's read Nehemiah chapter 2 together. And uh, let's see, is this going to work? Here we go. If you can follow along in your Bible, you can follow along on the screen up here. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was served him, I carried the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had never been sad in his presence before. So the king said to me, why is your face sad since you are not sick? This can only be sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city and the place of my ancestors' graves lies waste and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Then I said to the king, if it pleases the king, sorry, and if your servant has found favor with you, I ask that you send me to Judah to the city of my ancestors' graves, so that I may rebuild it. The king said to me, the queen also was sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a date. Then I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to the governors of the province beyond the river, so that they may grant me a passage until I arrive in Judah. a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, directing him to give me timber to make beams for the gates of the temple fortress and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the gracious hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent officers of the army and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the Israelites. So I came to Jerusalem and was there for three days. Part one, Vani, he came. So how do, what do we know about Nehemiah? Where is he? What's he like? Uh, how does he find his way to Jerusalem? from where he is. We know from chapter one that Nehemiah was the Persian capital, of, uh, capital city of Susa. He, that's where he was. Um, Susa is one of the world's oldest cities. It's mentioned in the biblical books of Ezra, Nehemiah, Daniel, and Esther. It was the center of power and art and worship for an empire that stretched from Greece all the way to India. It was a big deal. Susa is also about 800 miles from Jerusalem. Now, to put that in context, if you were to get on the I-90 and head east from Sheridan, 800 miles, that would put you in about Rochester, Minnesota, home of the Mayo Clinic. And you can ask me later how I know the Mayo Clinic is there. Um, If you go 800 miles west on the I-90, 
you end up in the little town of George, Washington. And, um, you know, how many of us really would like to walk or ride a donkey or a camel all the way across South Dakota and Minnesota? Yeah, how about the other way? Over the mountains, through the woods, and across the desert into western Washington? Nehemiah is a long way from Jerusalem. In chapter 1, we see that Nehemiah was cupbearer to the king. So he works in the palace. He's not a guard or a gardener. He attends to the needs of the king personally. He has daily access to the ruler of the Persian Empire. Now, being cupbearer to the king shows that Nehemiah, despite the fact that he's from a captured people, is considered so trustworthy, so honest, and so above corruption that he's selected to test the king's food before the king eats. He's in regular contact with the king, and there's a possibility that he even served as some sort of an advisor to the king of Persia. I wondered about that little bracketed phrase in, oh, this shouldn't be up. Could you back up one? <laughs> I just realized where we're at. Um, the, there was that little phrase in verse 6 that says, the queen was also sitting beside him. And it seems to be sort of a, a throwaway line, but I don't think anything in Scripture really is. The best guess is that the three of them had moved from a public setting, maybe the courtroom, to a more private setting, where the conversation could continue away from the intrigues of the rest of the court. So Nehemiah spends part of every day in the presence of the king. Here's another aside, and I'm going to do this as an aside because it's not in the text. There is an extremely high likelihood that as an official working in the king's presence, Nehemiah would have been a eunuch. Now you may think, why do we have to talk about that? I'm uncomfortable talking about that. Here's the point. As a eunuch, according to Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1, Nehemiah would not have been allowed to enter the temple for worship. Uh, he might not even be been allowed to be part of an assembly of God's people anywhere for worship. And as I read through Nehemiah, I came across a couple places where Nehemiah asks God to remember him for the good things he's done on behalf of his people. And I thought, well, that seems a little arrogant. That seems a little boastful. Once I realized that he was most likely prevented from ever worshiping with his fellow Jews, it kind of changed my perspective on Nehemiah. I decided to cut him a little slack. Um, and I was even more impressed with what he did for his people. So back to the text. What else do we learn about, uh, about Nehemiah? He's passionate. We see this in the fact that he wept over the condition of Jerusalem. As his brother reported Jerusalem's trouble and shame back in Nehemiah chapter 1-4. Think about it for a minute. Nehemiah's great-great-grandparents went into captivity 144 years before the story takes place. Do you know what your great-great-grandparents were doing in 1879? Maybe some of you have a clue where they were. You know, what about what was happening 800 miles away from you? You know, remember Rochester, Minnesota, 800 miles to the east? It had, a, 1879, it had about 5,000 people and no hospital of any kind. The town of George Washington, out west, 
It wasn't even a town until some pharmacist named Charlie Brown, true story, <laughs> decided to build it in 1957. So a lot can happen, or a lot can not happen in 144 years. But Nehemiah is still passionate, weeping and fasting over the disgrace of his homeland that he's never seen, and God's people that he's probably not allowed to associate a whole lot with. What else? Well, chapter 1 happens in the month of Kislev. Uh, Nehemiah has been fasting and praying and weeping and confessing, and he asks God, give me success today before the king. I want to go and do something about this. Chapter 2 starts with, you know, we've moved to the month of Nisan. Not Nisan, Nisan. And that's at least four months later. You know, God's timing is not always our timing. I love in the, in the drama series, The Chosen, if you get Angel Network, um, the, the character of Jesus likes to answer his disciples' questions about when something's going to happen with the word soon. And he often has a little smile on his face when he says it. You know, it's just, God's timing is not our timing. Uh, we don't know the details, but we see that Nehemiah was experiencing the need for patience so that the plan could proceed on God's timeline and not simply out of a sense of urgency. This was a big deal. Uh, the future of God's people depended on what God was orchestrating, and so Nehemiah had to be patient. That four months allowed Nehemiah to work out what was needed in Jerusalem, uh, learn who the government officials were and which territories he would travel through, time to dream about how the task could be accomplished and seeking God's guidance and direction. Some of you in recent months have chosen to speak to our local school board uh, on behalf of your kids and the issues they face in public education today. And I suspect that you prayed and rewrote your notes and were a little bit nervous before you stepped up to that microphone to address the school board. It's a bit like that for Nehemiah, with the added possibility of execution uh, for appearing sad before the king. Following God comes with no guarantees that we will be safe and comfortable if we do what he asks. So Nehemiah enters the king's presence with obvious sadness. He's fearing for his life, and the king looks with concern on his trusted servant, and Nehemiah concisely shares that his ruined homeland is the cause of his downcast face. When the king asks what Nehemiah needs, his first response is to pray to God, and, and that's understandable. It's one of those things you do quickly and in your head, and I think that's okay. He prays to God. It, it keeps us in the proper perspective uh, about what's going on around us. Then with tact and precision, Nehemiah sets a timeline and requests letters of safe passage, letters for the use of timbers from the king's forest, and for a place for himself to live in Jerusalem. And we find out later he asked for a 12-year leave of absence. That's a big ask. Finally, finally, Nehemiah can begin his journey. He's got his letters in hand for safe passage and building supplies. He has a contingent of army and cavalry officers to back up these letters, and then he meets the opposition, Sanballat the Horonite. He's from Damascus. That's the same Damascus in present-day Syria. 
we see Tobiah the Ammonite. That's today's modern country of Jordan. Then we're going to run into Geshem the Arab a little bit later. And isn't it curious that these three very displeased officials from Nehemiah's day are the same countries that continue to frustrate Israel in our own times 2,600 years later? I'll leave it at that. So, oh, where are we here? Vaini, he came. Nehemiah came to Jerusalem, but it was a process. What is it that facilitated his coming to Jerusalem? Well, God placed him in the presence of the king. He is passionate for God's people. He prays with tears and fasting and confession. He's patient. He's waiting for God's timing. He is prepared, even though he is scared, he's prepared to explain his task and what he needs to accomplish it. And lastly, Nehemiah is proactive with regard to the local government officials he's dealing with. So as you can see, section one has been brought to you by the letter P. Um, anyway, we'll move on. Part two, Vini Vidi. Vidi, he saw. Well, let's read the next section here. Then I got up during the night, I and a few men with me. I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. The animal I took was the animal I rode. And I went out by night by the valley gate, past the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that had been broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no place for the animal I was riding to continue. So I went up by way of the wall, valley by night and inspected the wall. Then I turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work." Quite literally, this is what Nehemiah did when he arrives in Jerusalem. He takes time to look around. Well, he did take three days to settle in. It had probably been a four-month journey on donkey or camel or horse or by foot. Um, but then he takes a look around. Now, this is a really smart thing to do. We can't see it yet, but as we read chapter, as we, in the middle of chapter two, we don't know this. But Nehemiah knows that he's going to basically be the governor of Jerusalem and Judah on behalf of the Persian king. So he needs to get the lay of the land since he's never set foot there. Remember, he's 144 years and 800 miles removed from Jerusalem with no internet and no cell coverage. And all he has is his brother's word that he has to take at face value uh, about the condition of the city. And he must sense that there's some tension when he shows up with official letters and a military escort. Sanballat and Tobiah are certainly upset. And why would that be? Well, if we look back 11 years into the previous book of the Bible, into Ezra, uh, we see the same king Artaxerxes was feeling pressure that the wrath of God of of the God of heaven was going to fall on him and his empire if he does not reinstate worship at the temple in Jerusalem. So he sends Ezra the priest to kickstart worship there. 
The temple utensils stolen by Nebuchadnezzar the Babylonian are returned. And on the way, Ezra is supposed to take up a free will offering from the Babylonians as he's traveling through their territory. Um, on top of that, uh, he gets to use money from the king's treasury for temple supplies and for animals to sacrifice. You know, how do we feel when our tax money goes to support people and programs in some other part of the world that we have no input or control in? Sometimes it leads to a little bit of tension. You know, and on top of all of that, it's not just a question of where the tax money is coming from. On top of that, Priest Ezra is given this authority. And this is from Ezra 7. And you, Ezra, according to the God-given wisdom you possess, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province, all the people in the province beyond the river, who know the laws of your God, and you shall teach those who do not know them. And all who will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on them, whether for death or banishment or for confiscation of their goods or for imprisonment. So, if you were a Jew and you did not follow God's law or the instructions of the king, you could be killed, banished, imprisoned, or have your goods taken away. If you were not a Jew and you did not obey God's law or the king's instructions, you could be killed, banished, imprisoned, or have all your stuff taken away. So Nehemiah could see the tension. There is tension when he walks into Jerusalem. So what does he do? He snuck out at night on his own, on his own animal, horse, camel, donkey, we don't know. Uh, so basically it's saying at his own expense, he went out to take a look around. Now, what did he look at? This is, for those of you who are into the outdoor stuff, topographic map, uh, and I don't have a pointer. So you can see Mount Moriah here, it's a little fuzzy, the Kidron Valley, and Mount Zion up to the, actually that would be to the west, but anyway. Um, so you can see where the lines are close together, that's really steep where the lines are further apart, that's a little flatter territory. What he does is he walks out the west side gate, what was left of it, the valley gate. He goes down past something called the Dragon Spring, which we don't exactly know what that is anymore, to the southern tip of the city, and then he kind of gets stuck somewhere around here. He can't find a way for his animal to get through and, um, and so he has to finish traveling up towards the Temple Mount. That's at the top of the screen. That big square area is where the temple is. That's the highest elevation there. He's got to travel up that valley below. And he ends up being a couple hundred feet down below the broken wall in the dark. Now, think about how easy is it to estimate the severity of a problem when you're in the dark. For example, say the furnace goes out on your camper at 2.30 in the morning, and you are left scrambling around in the dirt with a flashlight in your mouth trying to figure out whether it's an electrical issue or whether the propane has run out. Uh, you are out there by yourself, you know, as a hypothetical example. Um, it's hard to figure things out in the dark. 
So why is he out there? Well, first of all, no one else is going to bother him when he's there. He's got the place to himself and the couple of people he brought, brought along who knew what he was up to. All I can say is that the damage must have been pretty bad if he can assess this from hundreds of feet away in the dark and know what he's getting himself into. Uh, here's just a little picture to give you a scale. You can see the woman standing at the top right. Uh, this is a section of Nehemiah's wall that was discovered in about 2007. So just to get a little visual image, what kind of a wall we're, we're talking about here. I find it funny that when Nehemiah retraces his steps to the valley gate and returns later that night, the officials don't know where he had gone or what he was doing. Well, why is Nehemiah free to come and go as he pleases to check out, you know, broken walls and burned gates? Because there's no walls and there's no gates. You know, it's just ironic that, they're, that he gets to just wander freely in this sort of waste landscape. Instead of being a typical government bureaucrat, Nehemiah takes time to see the damage with his own eyes and, like, and most likely gets a read on the mood of the people he'll be governing as well. So, Vaini, he came. Nehemiah came to Jerusalem through this long process and all these character qualities. Vidi, he saw. Nehemiah took time to look around assess the damage, to read the room. What is he getting himself into? Uh, part three, Vici, he conquered. Who conquered? God did. Let's read. Uh, picking up at verse 17. Then I said to them, this is Nehemiah speaking, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned, Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that, we no longer, so that we may no longer suffer disgrace. I told them that the hand of my God had been gracious upon me and also the words that the king had spoken to me. Then they said, let us start building. So they committed themselves to the common good. But when Sanballat uh, and Tobiah uh, Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard of it. They mocked and ridiculed us saying, what is this that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven is the one who will give us success and we his servants are going to start building but you have no share or claim or memorial in Jerusalem. So what do we see Nehemiah doing here? He's building a relationship. He identifies with the locals and the problem. He says, we, we are in this together. This is our problem. And he's committed to staying. You know, as a general rule of thumb, do you prefer to be asked to do something or told to do something? Sometimes we laugh about being voluntold. Um, I remember doing a renovation on the Crowley Fleck law office downtown, and we were a little behind schedule, and our supervisor and the building owner were talking about when the cabinets were gonna get installed, and our project manager breezes in and says, oh, my minions would love to come and finish the cabinets this Saturday. Oh, wouldn't we, though? 
We don't like to be told what to do. It's much better to be asked. So Nehemiah has authority on his side, but he uses it in a gracious way. He identifies with his fellow Jews in distress. He invests in that relationship. He could have said, you know, God told me to do this and the king is watching, so get on with it. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he shared how God has graciously guided the entire process and the, and the solid support that the king has given to the project. So what's the response? You know, the people, it's like watching sports. The people say, let's go. Let's go. Let's do this thing. Can you imagine the excitement? God is moving. We have the favor of the king. And they committed themselves to the common good. This wasn't for Nehemiah's family. This wasn't because there's kickbacks to local officials or to the well-connected. This was for the good of everyone in Jerusalem, bottom to top. Let's think about that for a moment. A lot of times the sermons I've heard or articles I've read on Nehemiah focus on leadership. And if leaders do this, success will follow. Do what Nehemiah did and we can't lose. And now I agree that Nehemiah is an exemplary leader in many ways. His priorities are in order. His character is good. He's obedient. You know, all of that. But a large part of the book is about followers. You know, leaders aren't much good without followers. Not much happens. Well, I believe that all of us, every one of us, has some aspect of our life where we are in charge of leading somebody else. A lot of our time is going to be spent as followers. It's such a crucial role, and so very little gets accomplished when we don't follow well. Well, what does following well look like? I think it involves uh, discernment. Um, are you following someone worth following? There will be, oh, sorry, wrong one. Uh, do, you know, are you following someone worth following? Do they have clear vision? Do they have good judgment? Do they have sound character? I would humbly suggest that those who follow have a great responsibility to measure their leaders. Following well also involves attitude. We see Nehemiah's fellow Jews respond with enthusiasm and the sense of the bigger picture. They're eager to start and they're not just in it for themselves. I think they have taken the measure of Nehemiah and they clearly see God's hand at work. If God is with them, they are willing to do the task. And then there's a reality check. You know, how do you know if you're doing something God wants done? There's going to be some opposition, right? Uh, Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, they are not pleased. As we move through the book, we're going to see that they've made a pretty good life for themselves in Jerusalem. A strong, protected, walled city of Jerusalem threatens their power and influence. So they push back. They push back against Nehemiah and his plans. They attack Nehemiah at it it, what seems to be one of his greatest assets, his standing before the king of Persia. Loyal, trustworthy, corruption-free Nehemiah is accused of rebelling against the king. That's got to hurt, right? That's got to sting. But notice Nehemiah's response. Does he pull out his paper and wave it around and say, I have a letter from the king? Well, Tobiah and Sanballat and Geshem could say the same thing. They're officials too. Um, you know, 
instead of saying my letter from the king is better than your letter from the king, uh, he goes to the ultimate source of authority and he says the God of heaven will give us success and we his servants are going to start building and you three have no claim on Jerusalem. That takes a lot of courage. I think as our society wanders further from God's truth, we will experience more opposition from people who don't recognize God's authority. And while we have, you know, political responsibilities and community obligations, our primary allegiance is to Jesus, and I think that's going to be tested. So, Vaini, Nehemiah came to Jerusalem through a long process. Vidi, he saw. Nehemiah took time to look around, assess the damage, read the room. Vici, he conquered. Who conquered? God conquered. God is the one who gives success. And we don't see the end result in chapter 2, but we see the start of it. So let's ask ourselves this. Do we see something in our world, or in the life of God's people, or in the things that God values, that is in disgrace? It might be here at the Rock. It might be something in our family, in our neighborhood, at our workplace, in Sheridan. It might be 800 miles away. It might be 8,000 miles away. Be like Nehemiah. Let it move you to action. Let it make you want to do something about it. For example, just in our own congregation, I think of families in our church that have adopted. It's a disgraceful thing that children should be unwanted. With passion and prayer and patience and planning, God has enabled those adoptions to take place. I think of Tim Cooper. Um, he's a, a teacher and a, and a longtime church member here who's recently decided to step into the leadership role as principal at the junior high. I believe he sensed a degree of brokenness and dysfunction there that needed to be addressed by a person of faith. And I think he could use some great followers to back him up. This is a key part of our community of Sheridan, is our junior high. Uh, and we've also talked about leading and following. It's been a year or so since our founding pastor and a portion of our church family left. Uh, they are still our brothers and sisters. We will be spending eternity with them. There are some damaged... <laughs> There's some damaged relationships that need to be rebuilt. But in spite of that, uh, we continue to see steady new growth here. And we sense that God wants to keep building this church family. And there's an ongoing need for another pastor to join our team. That's a significant leadership position. And we want to be patient. And we want to find the person that God has for us. And so I'd ask that we all would all be praying towards that end. And for this, for this leader to come. And that brings up one more leadership need. Um, Brent Brooks and myself are going to be stepping, well, we're going to be transitioning from leading to following. We're stepping down from the board in December. And it seems every time I'm on the board, something blows up and there's some big disruption. And it happened 14 years ago. It happens every time. So you don't want me to stay on the board. Trust me. We need someone else. Um, be discerning 
pray about this because the elder board plays a pretty significant role in the pastoral search process. Be discerning, pray about who you want to follow, and encourage those whom you think you could lead well to step up. If you're sensing God's call to you in this role, don't, don't say no. And when God, you know, is allowed to set the direction, it's a joy to lead and, fall, and follow in the work that God has for us to do here at the Rock. So, do you see something that's in, the, in disgrace? Let it, let it move you to action. Are you willing to lead? Are you willing to follow? Let's pray. God, we thank you for the book of Nehemiah. We thank you for the example he sets. We thank you for uh, just the wonderful encouragement it is to see you active at work, moving amongst your people, inspiring them and encouraging them to do the work you want them to do. And as we try and translate that into our own day and our own age and learn the lessons from that, I pray that you would help us to be people of character, uh, willing to step up and lead, if that's what you call us to do, willing to follow joyfully, enthusiastically, if that is where you've placed us. And, uh, and we know that that changes during our lives. Sometimes we lead, sometimes we follow. God, give us discernment, give us understanding, help us to do those things well, and help us to, to really work towards seeing and understanding and doing something about the things that break your heart about the things that are a disgrace in the world around us. We pray that you'd give us the courage to, to do that, to step up and, and to be your people uh, in our town, in our society, in the world that we live. We pray these things in your name. Amen.